please open in our Bibles to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. Dan led us last week through the first part of Acts chapter 19. We're going to finish chapter 19 today, beginning in just a moment as I read from verse 21 to the end of the chapter. Last night was a unique night, I think, in our personal history as a family. Before I read the scripture, I think this illustration will encourage us as we look at it. Uh, it was the championship game six of the Tampa Bay Rays uh, Houston Astros series. And uh, my oldest son, who works for uh, Amazon, had a work responsibility as his division is responsible for in part Alexa and keeping Alexa current um, with what's ever going on in the world of sports. But my wife, Linda, who um, heretofore I was not aware she was truly a baseball fan, uh, stayed up and watched this game. And I mean, for for non-baseball fans, it feels like just another game uh, and a long game at that if you're following how long baseball games take these days to complete. But as she informed me this morning, she had a rooting interest in the game. One of her high school friends, she went to Young Life with this uh, young lady who's now a proud mom. One of the players, starting players on the uh, Tampa Bay Rays, Joey Wendell, plays on the Rays. And so as the game was going on, Linda is texting her friend, the mother of Joey Wendell, and the mother is texting back, and they're both cheering on Joey as the Tampa Bay Rays beat the Houston Astros. Yay! They cheated last year. And beat the Yankees in the previous series. I always root that the Yankees lose. I know that. I need to grow in my sanctification. But she had a rooting interest in a game that for many people who aren't baseball enthusiasts seems irrelevant to their lives during a time like this. We're about to read in scripture of a riot that took place a long time ago in a city you have never been to. And I imagine were you to come across this passage in your reading plan, your personal devotions, you you might be tempted to conclude, as I would be tempted to conclude, this has nothing to do with me nor my world and the circumstances I'm facing right now. This passage gives us, even in its detailed description of a riot in the ancient city of Ephesus, a rooting interest in what God is doing in your world and your family and your life and your workplace right now. And so as we look, may God give us eyes to see what he desires us to see. Which is when Christ's reign comes through the message of the gospel, it not only changes the core of our lives, it changes the lives of those around us. Acts 19, beginning in verse 21. 
This is God's word. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of this great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, speaking of his fellow silversmiths, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Verse 35. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men... Of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither, note this, sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. There are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when they had said these things... The town clerk dismissed the assembly. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father, as we turn to our Bibles this morning, we 
we would pray that this ancient account of a riot in a far away city and your activity and work in the midst of it would reassure our hearts that your word, your purposes, your kingdom, Lord Jesus, it still prevails. And yet you work through human means, and so we see how the message of the gospel does disrupt the status quo while simultaneously commanding Christians everywhere to obey legal authorities and not be troublemakers. Lord, give us wisdom to not simply see what we agree with, Give us wisdom in the fear of the Lord to receive the full counsel from you this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is this passage about? As Dan mentioned, and Luke has underscored throughout the book of Acts, verse 20 of chapter 19 says it well. The word of the Lord prevails mightily. The word of the Lord continues to increase and prevail mightily. As I said in an earlier message, the word keeps winning and bringing people in to Christ's kingdom, establishing them in churches, and being gospel witnesses to their culture and times. But there seems to be a minor theme underneath that major theme as I was looking at it today and this week. And it seems to be this, and these really are two ideas that act in tension with one another. It almost seems like they pull in opposite directions. And for simple people like me, if we don't allow each its proper place, we tend to emphasize one at the exclusion of the others. We tend, to, we tend to focus on one, often in comportment with our personalities, and we use it to flatten the other. But Luke presents both. They're not contradictions, but they are juxtaposed against each other, and they portray for us a church, a Christian, a Jesus follower that genuinely fears the Lord and not the opinions of the world and not even the opinions of Christian culture. And it's these two ideas that I present to you to consider from this passage. Kelsey, I skipped the point too. We must not be afraid to let the message of the gospel disrupt the status quo. We see that in the opening verses of the paragraph we read. We must not be afraid. God, give us grace to not be afraid to let the message of the gospel disrupt the status quo. But when we get to the second paragraph, Christian, perhaps this for you is the bigger point today. Perhaps the first one is, and then the second one, you don't need to be. But I think, at least for me, the second one really stands out because it's not where I go intuitively as a follower of Christ. The second point is this. We must be careful to obey all laws 
unless Scripture forbids us to do so. Hmm. Christians in the book of Acts draw great reassurance that in every situation where the gospel is opposed, where leaders are arrested, sometimes even martyred or killed, that the governing authorities of that time do not declare or conclude that there is wrongdoing, law-breaking, troublemaking. I know that falls on in this cultural day as, really? But at the same time, the message of the gospel and the ministry of Paul and the ministry of Peter and the present does disrupt the status quo. It tends to turn things upside down without resorting to troublemaking, law-breaking, and rabble-rousing for the sake of standing out. So there is wisdom here that Luke gives us, inspired as he is by the Spirit, and perhaps motivated by his friendship for Theophilus, a fellow Gentile, perhaps a person who works in Roman administration, but certainly someone who wants to understand not only the beginnings of the early church, but as an Theophilus, as, a, as an argument that Christianity, following Jesus, obeys governing authorities, even as it disrupts the social order. Let's take a look at both. May God give me grace to be brief and clear and practical too. First big idea. We must not be afraid to let the gospel message upset the status quo. Dan led us through the passage last week that really provides the context and the narrative, if you will, overshadowing this event in Ephesus. You remember Paul has been in Ephesus, this great city, this major city. Think of New York City or St. Louis or San Francisco or Boston of our day, this great city of the Mediterranean world. It was also a city that was famous for its occult practices, famous for its practice of the dark arts, famous, infamous for that there were specialists there. And so it's not surprising then that not only as Paul went to the synagogue to reason from the scriptures that Christ was the fulfillment of the Jewish hope, the Messiah, but as he persuaded as well non-Jews in the theater that he rented that Christ is the Savior of the world from our sins, as we talked about, that things began to happen. In fact, there was supernatural opposition that was expressed and there were, it says, miraculous healings, even so much, which I don't, I can't, quite get my head around this that even paul's like handkerchief or linen cloth that would brush against people was was being expression of the presence of god but the people who were spiritually oppressed demonically oppressed were being delivered through the power of the name of jesus that's what the text said that dan led us through so much so that a group of young men schoolboy men if you will schoolboy age the sons of sceva said hey i want in on this And they, last week, we read, began playing with the name of Jesus in some occult settings, only to find out that 
that Satan won't be trifled with. And they wound up getting beat up and blackened eye. And Dan led you through that passage. But in the believing community, and, you, and I make this final contextual comment, it says that following Paul's ministry, it says, verse 18, that many of those who were now believing, confessing and divulging their practices, noted this, who practiced these magic arts, these are Christians, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them to be 50,000 pieces of silver, which by today's valuation would be about $6 million. Notice they did it voluntarily. This wasn't one of those book burnings you see in movies depicted during World War II Germany or an authoritarian regime which people are forced to burn books for sentence. No, this was voluntarily done as an expression of their perhaps repentance or devotion or allegiance to the Lord. But burning that material when it's valued in millions of dollars by our current valuation certainly got the attention of the city of Ephesus. That would make headline news on whatever newsfeed or paper they were reading or and now as we turn to our passage demetrius the silversmith who is a who is a craftsman who creates shrine replicas of artemis the the goddess the greek goddess of fertility in the in the greek pantheon of gods and and would make replicas of the the temple itself this ginormous temple in ephesus something the size of two football fields huge what's left of it is so little but scholars depict this as just a massive structure what was considered the seventh wonder of the world Demetrius begins to notice that his income as a creator a seller of these trinkets these these shrine replicas that people would buy either as a memento or probably more likely taking to their home to worship as a token towards Artemis, his income begins to drop. And he makes a deadly accusation against Paul and the Christians. And we read his accusation beginning in verse 25. Kelsey's is quote number two. Demetrius gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know, you know that from this business we have our wealth. Speaking of the, the silversmith replica making work. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but almost in all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that God's made with hands are not God's. That's true. That's what Paul was saying. He's been saying that throughout his gospel journeys. There is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all of Asia worship. Do you see what Demetrius is doing and saying to his fellow shrine makers at the guild, his brothers in the business? 
He's saying that Paul and his companions and the effect it's having in persuading many to follow Christ and the, the demonstration of, of its truthfulness through the, the supernatural ministry that is beginning to impact people. He tells us in verse 25, we're going to lose our wealth. In verse 26, we're going to lose our religion. And in verse 27, we're going to lose our civic pride, that which we're known for. Imagine, and I wouldn't, but imagine, again, I would never do this, but imagine that I believed that rooting for the Red Sox, being a baseball fanatic for the Red Sox, being a Fenway fan, maniac, was foolish, idolatrous, and that Christians should never do that. I'm saying imagine that. And I'm a prominent preacher in Boston, Massachusetts. I've got a TV audience. I've got five or 600 people in front of me there near Fenway. And I take that stand. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Any good thing, any gift from above can become an idol in my heart. Good things, when, they, when we derive our sense of security from them, when we, when we root our identity in them, when we attach our hopes to them, good things can become up. But I'm saying in principle, being a Fenway fanatic is wrong. And that if you're a member of this church, this is imaginary, you must stop it. As, mes- as the word leaks out that I'm saying that, and let's say I have some influence, which I don't, in the Boston community, what do you think the reaction would be in downtown Boston? <laughs> all those restaurant owners that depend on the income, at least they used to, uh, all those t-shirt sellers, all Nesson, the broadcasters, and all the commercial revenue generated by that, there would be a financial concern. There would be a, a civic concern. There would be a cultural concern, besides the fact that that guy's crazy. But that his message and the ability of these Christians to carry that out would undercut something that's at core. If we can appreciate that, and that may seem like a silly example to you, you can understand how this deadly accusation against Paul and the ministry of gospel regarding Artemis the temple and its worship of the goddess would cut very close to the bone so that it leads to a riot. And that's what occurs. A riot ensues and we see that the, they take up the, the chant, these laborers. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And in essence, root for the home team. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And by the time we get to Verse 32, they don't even know what they're crying about. There's confusion. The assembly's in confusion. People are coming together. They, they bring out a, a Jewish man, Alexander, to somehow protect the Jewish community and differentiate what Paul, who's Jewish, but a Christian is saying from what the Jewish community believes. And there's confusion with that. And it becomes chaos. There's probably violence. There's 
There's anger and Paul and his companions are being threatened. Two of the companions are dragged into a theater. Their lives are on the line. Is my presentation of the gospel a threat to anyone's sin or idolatry? When I share Christ... Does the Christ that I share call them to turn away from something or someone in order to turn to Christ and his kingdom? Because Paul's does, and it's disrupting the status quo. It's disrupting the social order. I've shared this story before. But it's the most vivid example of when one of my family members came to Christ and the wise way in which another family member forced her to count the cost. She knew, she knew in her knower that Jesus was true. This is going to bring me to tears. She knew that the Bible she had been raised with was reliable. But the man that had asked her to marry her was Muslim. He was wealthy. He flew around Europe in a helicopter to to do his business deals. She was beautiful. She was successful in the financial world. And she had his ring. My youngest sister shared the gospel with her older sister and said to her, you have to choose. He, although a lovely man, is going to require you to become this. And Christ, who you'll never see with your eyes in this life and will not promise you economic security forever in this life, offers you his life bleeding on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and promises you his faithful love. But you will need to turn in order to follow him. You will need to leave something behind. You will need to count the cost in order to follow him. Now, truth be told, she had been sitting under the preaching of John Stott for about two months at All Souls Church there in London. She didn't let anyone know she was there. She'd been hearing about the gospel for two months straight. But when her sister said to her, you must count the cost and leave something behind, she knew she had a decision to make. It was disrupting her status quo, wasn't it? It was calling her to count the cost. Something was going to need to be left behind. And in a testimony to God's grace and mercy alone, she not only turned... And follow Jesus, which we both were flabbergasted by because our confidence was in ourselves and not the power of the gospel, as Dan pointed out last week. But she's still bearing fruit today. Friends, once you become a Christian, the call to leave certain things behind doesn't stop. The call to turn 
and follow him hasn't ended. In my life, there are those weaknesses, call them besetting patterns of sinful thinking and sinful living that I can at times get frustrated about and say, that's it, I'm not going to try anymore. And the Lord says, no, I'm calling you, albeit weekly, to turn and walk and continue dependently to leave behind the former manner of life. And then there are those times where he reveals something suddenly, unexpectedly. I wasn't expecting it. I've been walking you three decades. What do you mean I I fear man in this relationship? I want their approval more in this relationship than I want to live for God and delight in the fear of the Lord. And there's still that call. There's still that turn. There's still that this gospel is intended to disrupt your status quo. Not just theirs, yours. In those deep-seated desires and idolatries and loyalties that we hold tightly to because Jesus, the Savior that we sung about, is King alone. Amen? Amen. So, friend, as as the application question asks, Would there be conclusions I refuse to reach, beliefs I refuse to share, convictions I fail to live out of because they seem strange to others? Who do I fear more? The opinions of others? My social network? My spouse? kids, Christian parent, my classmates, my co-worker, my boss. Who do I fear more or God? And what might God in his mercy be calling me, Bauer Evans, and you, follower of Christ, to leave behind in order to be faithful to the gospel? If we only preach a gospel, if I only preach a gospel, if you only share a gospel that confirms the status quo in someone's life, I don't think it can be the real gospel. The gospel is meant to upset the way things are in the world, the things the world values, the priorities and passions found there. Has Christ and his word, his message of the kingdom, the gospel, upset anything? in your heart lately has christ and his kingship and his word challenged how you are living in your world lately then let me suggest to you you have a gospel that isn't disrupting the status quo and you need to turn and face jesus in order to leave behind what takes its place so as christians we need not be afraid of letting the gospel upset the status quo for we know christ in his grace and mercy calls us to himself in calling us to leave those things behind but at the same time and i wrap up with this and this will be briefer we're also called to be careful to obey all the laws scripture forbids we see that in verse 29 to 41. In verse 
29 of chapter 19, we are introduced to, actually verse 35, the town clerk. And the town clerk, after he quieted the crowd, says this to these silversmiths who are parading through the streets of Ephesus and and the mob that has gathered, confused though they be. Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city, the Ephesians, is temple keeper of the great Artemis, of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither, this is astonishing, sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open. There are the proconsuls or governors or judges. Let them bring charges against another. But if you seek any further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. We have seen this throughout the book of Acts. How Christians are often accused of wrongdoing, of breaking the law, of being troublemakers, and we know in a Roman province, in a Roman colony, they have very little tolerance for that. And yet they continue to be vindicated from those charges. Just a chapter ago, Gallio in Corinth released Paul without incident, though the mob was screaming for his blood. And the person in our story today, he's not a Christian. He's a town clerk. He's the keeper of the records. He's the highest civic official in the city. Think of the town selectmen or board members here in Franklin. Think of the mayor of a major city. And he says to the mob, look, everybody knows about Artemis. This is the the temple city. And then he, this governing official... We have no indication that he is sympathetic to Christians or not. He concludes. That they have done nothing illegal, nothing. Verse 37, sacrilegious, nor blasphemers of the goddess. Paul is saying your belief in Artemis is worthless. It's 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 not true. These idols that they have created are, are, are dead. They have power to do nothing. It's not that Paul isn't seeking the truth, but he's not, they're not going to temple sites and, and ransacking the temple. They're not standing in front of these temple sites and blocking entrance, or they're, they're not doing anything that would break the laws of that city. And the town clerk says, They have done nothing illegal. In fact, you rioters are the ones doing something illegal. And if you don't knock it off, Rome is going to come in here and do something you don't want them to do. It 
it does make me thankful when I read this passage for courts of law that try at least to be impartial. I'm thankful still in our context for freedom of expression, albeit imperfect, freedom of religious assembly. We're enjoying it this morning. Freedom of speech, all expressions of God's common grace. So what would it mean for me as a Christian who's been given a message that is intended to upset the status quo, but to be wise in my dissemination of it, according to this passage, we must be careful to obey all laws unless Scripture forgets us to do so. When those who accuse me of wrongdoing because of my Christian belief or practice, when those who accuse us of breaking the law because of our Christian practice and witness, do they see in us a humble servant of Christ or as one writer put it, an angry mercenary full of Christian grievances? Never saw Jesus that way. Ever. We must not be afraid to be the kind of people God calls us to be in this world that not only answers the question by faith, what do I fear more in this world? The opinions of others or God. But we must also not be afraid because Scripture commends it to be law keepers not lawbreakers and peacemakers, not trouble starters. Because we are reassured in these pages that the word of God prevails in the midst of chaos. Amen? Amen. For when Christ's reign comes, it dramatically changes the core of our lives and it begins to touch the lives of others. Friend, as we go into our week this week, may God give us even more grace to first be reassured that God's word, God's purposes, God's promises will prevail in a world in chaos. And secondly, that the gospel that saves me is also the gospel that calls me through disrupting my status quo to continue turning from those things that would usurp Christ's place and finding in Christ my King, my Savior, my life, and as a testimony to His Word and authority, being careful, being careful to obey the laws unless Scripture forbids us to do so. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Lord, we're so thankful for this book and Luke's meticulous attention to details, which helps us as modern day followers, Christians. It builds a bridge from the past through Christ into our present circumstances. And not only, Lord, gives us vision for what God is doing, but, Lord, practical wisdom for how to walk it out. 
together and by faith day by day. Lord, we are reminded in this passage the importance of setting apart you, fearing you in the biblical sense of that word, respecting and loving and submitting to you above all others. So I pray, Lord, this week you would give me grace, you would give my friends grace, that when we fear disappointing our our spouse or our parents, we fear losing a friend because of a hard conversation that we've had. We fear the scorn that sometimes comes through a social media platform or a conversation. We fear, Lord, the reaction in our department or from our boss when Christian subjects are discussed. I pray, Lord, you would give us the reminder of the gospel and the grace it provides that we need only fear the one true and living God. And we would find in that a glimpse the hope that you will be all that you need you to be with us in that moment. That we might live for you day by day. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.